And God spoke all these words, saying, I am the Lord your God, who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. You shall have no other gods before me. Let's pray together. Mighty Father in heaven, we thank you for your beautiful law that you have given to us as a gift. And uh, we pray as we begin a study of your law that uh, you would give us understanding, you would give us ears to hear the words that you would speak to us, and that you would apply these words, these ancient words, into our lives, into our community, and even into our culture. And uh, so we open our hearts to you. We pray that you would be our teacher by your Holy Spirit. We ask in Jesus' holy name. Amen. Amen. Well, today uh, we are beginning a, a careful study over the next 10 weeks of the Ten Commandments. And one commentator has said that the Ten Commandments is the climactic moment of the whole book of Exodus. Actually, if you know, Exodus has 40 chapters in it. Ten Commandments comes chapter 20, right at the center. And oftentimes in the Bible, the centerpiece of any story is the climax of that story. And historically, the Ten Commandments have played an important role in Christian discipleship. So, they, you know, if someone became a Christian and they needed to learn, you know, what are the basic things that you need to know about being a Christian? There were three kind of creeds that were used by the church to instruct them. So the first was the Apostles' Creed. We often say that in our church, which would give a person just a basic understanding of who God is in Christian doctrine, how to read the Bible well. And then they would learn the Lord's Prayer. It's kind of an introduction to Christian spirituality. How do you pray? How do you know God? How do you have a relationship with God? And then the last piece would be the Ten Commandments, an introduction to Christian ethics. How should we live? How should we behave as Christians? And uh, what's so amazing about each of those statements of our faith, the Lord's Prayer, the Apostles' Creed, and the Ten Commandments, is that each of them is so incredibly short. Um, children can learn and memorize all of them. But also, almost every word of each of those creeds is so pregnant, it's so charged with meaning, that those words have been used by God to shape worlds, build civilizations, and whole cultures. And what we're going to find over the next 10 weeks is that those little commands that you might have memorized as a child, thou shalt not steal, honor your mother and father, keep the Sabbath, uh, they're so rich and robust. And these words are truly precious. God himself thought that these words were precious. You know, when we read the story, we're going to find that he himself wrote these words with his own finger into the stones that he gave to Moses. What other words in the Bible are like that? That's, that's how, how deeply important they are to, to him. And so my hope is that they will make our hearts sing as well of the beauty and goodness of the God who made us and who made this world. So this morning we're going to have an overview of the concept of God's law. The God's law is the Ten Commandments, or God's law. We're looking at the first of the Ten Commandments this morning, and I want to answer three simple questions about understanding the law in the Bible, and this is what they are. What is the law? Why do we need it? And how can we obey it? What is the law? Why do we need the law? And how can we obey the law? been deep 
reflection throughout history on those three questions, and I'm hoping that we can benefit from that reflection as well this morning. So three simple questions on the law. The first is this. What is the law? And the way I would summarize it is the law is a description of how God envisions human life when it is thriving and being what it was meant to be. So the law is a description of your human life. If, if everything was going right, you were finally who you, would, you were to be, who God intended you to be, it would look like the law. And this vision that God has is a spiritual vision, which means that the law is not a list of behaviors that you could list off and say, did that, did that, did that. But the law is a quality of character that reaches every part of our being. Our actions, our thoughts, our emotions, our desires, our affections, the things that we love, that's what God's law is. And so one commentator has pointed out the difference between when you read the law in the Bible compared to the law in many modern societies is, uh, is how uh, simple the law in the Bible is. Uh, you know, so for example, f- no one knows how many federal laws there are in the United States. Uh, the last number that I, you know, just Googling came up with was in the 80s, they said there was 23,000, I think it was 23,000 pages of laws. So that, that's about seven feet tall of, of pieces of paper of how much law, laws there are. And every aspect of our society has a law attached to it that's been very carefully worded. And so the law is very detailed. And so oftentimes people will commit a crime, but if they can find a little technicality or loophole in the law, they can get away with the crime because that's how the law functions. God does not operate that way. Instead, he gives a short summaries that cover all of life. Ten simple commandments. And he expects that you will know that money laundering is stealing and lying. And just because the law doesn't say thou shalt not launder money, doesn't mean that God approves of it. The law describes a spiritual posture of heart toward God and our neighbors that guides everything we do. Or as Jesus puts it, if you've never murdered someone, but you really hate someone, you'd be glad if they were dead. That you were glad, you'd be glad if they were gone out of your life. Then you've broken the sixth commandment. That's, what, that's how the sixth commandment works. Or if you've never committed adultery, but you have fantasies just ringing through your heart, desiring other people that aren't your spouse, then you've broken the, you've broken the seventh commandment. And so the way the Bible describes understanding God's laws is not a list of behaviors that says that we should have the law written on our hearts, deep down in our being. And of course, um, or it should search out every part of who we are, our inner moral, spiritual, and intellectual life. And the way it does this is with these simple summaries. And of course, there are a number of these short, simple summaries. The Ten Commandments is one of them. Probably the most famous short summary comes from our Lord, where he says, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and you shall love your neighbor as yourself. He says, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments, this simple summary that covers all of life. And those two commandments are precisely how the Ten Commandments are written. So if you know the Ten Commandments, the first four 
are about our love for God. You shall have no other gods before me. You shall not make a graven image that you worship. You shall not take the Lord's name in vain. You need to keep the Sabbath. Those are all about our love for God. And then the next six are about our love for the, our neighbors. Honor your mother and father. And you shall not murder or steal or commit adultery or steal or bear false witness. You shall not covet your neighbor's uh, possessions. Love God and love for neighbor is the whole law. But actually, it's interesting. The book of James tells us another thing about the law, where it says, whoever keeps the whole law but fails in one point has become accountable for all of it. Which seems to suggest that the whole law of God is actually contained in any one of the commandments. So, for example, you take this first commandment that we just read. You shall, love, or you shall have no other gods before me. Well, if you break any other commandment, you're breaking that one because you have some other God. You have some other principle that you're following that's not God. And so you've set that, you have another God. So, you, so all the, the, the rest of the law is contained in this one commandment. But also, um, often, we often sin because we make other things gods in our lives. Why do we steal? Because money and possessions are our true God. So we've broken the first commandment by, by, by breaking the, the eighth commandment. We commit adultery because sex is the true God and object of devotion in our lives. We covet other people's possessions because we love those things more than God. We don't keep the Sabbath because, Sabbath because we trust, trust in work more than God's fatherly provision. All the other commandments are summarized in this one commandment. Or take, you shall not murder. That means that you should have a respect and love for life and thriving in everything you do. If you love life, well, it will cause you to love God because he's the Lord and giver of life. He made all the life in the world, and so you'll love him if you love life. Or uh, it will make you honor your mother and father because they gave you life. Your life came for them, and you should respect them for the life that came for you. And so if you love life, you're going to honor your mother and father. Or it will make you not lie. All death came into the world through a lie. So if you love life and hate death, then you're going to speak the truth because it's going to bring life into the world. All the commandments can be summarized in you shall not murder. And what that also means is that you can't say things like, you know, I'm just going to work on this one commandment right now because they're all connected. You know, for example, if you say, you know what, I'm going to start with, I'm going to keep the Sabbath. I'm going to, commandment number four, I'm going to work on. Well, then you're going to come to church and you're going to start confessing your sins on Sunday morning and that's going to get into every area of your life. And you're like, I'm just working on this commandment, but all of a sudden, everything else. And then you're going to hear a sermon that's maybe, you know, about your relationships or about your work or about, uh, you know, about your family or about your neighborhood or about, you know, the purpose of your life. And now all of a sudden, your whole life was touched by simply obeying this one commandment, uh, keep the Sabbath. Or if you start honoring your mother and father, you're going to immediately start saying, well, what other authorities are there in my life that I've not been showing respect to? It's going to affect your work. Who's my boss? Am I honoring my boss? You know, or maybe my church leaders. Am I listening to the spiritual leaders of my life who've got a place there? I'm not listening to them. Am I respecting God? You start honoring your mother and father. What about my father who is in heaven? Have I started respecting him? And so now, again, you're back to the first commandment. That's why when someone starts thinking about being a Christian, it often starts affecting areas of their lives that they didn't expect. Maybe that happened to you. 
You thought, you know, I could, I could have a little spirituality in my life. I wanted to keep it in this one little area, and then it started affecting everything. It's because God made us, and all of his laws are connected. They're whole. But you might hear that and say, well, okay, that sounds intimidating. I've got lots of problems. <laughs> and, if, and so if I start walking with the Lord, you're saying I'm going to have to face all of them at the same time. I wouldn't think of it that way. I would think of it uh, as really you only have one thing to work on, is loving God, this first commandment. Have no other God before me. And when we know the Lord, when we're walking with the Lord, all the other things start to make sense in our life. It, he, all things hold together in him. He ties them all together. And that's the beauty and that's the hope of it is that he is our creator. He knows how we were meant to live. And so when we ask, what is the law? It is ultimately God's vision for humanity as a world of love. And that impacts every part of our being down to the deepest part of our inner life and thoughts and emotions. But I want to make one more observation before we turn to the second point. Because, you know, when I say that the law is uh, a vision for human flourishing, that may lose some of the threatening aspect that some of you may think of in the Bible, that when God talks about his law, you know, there's his wrath that comes. There's the punishment if you don't do his law. And um, God does not just try to inspire us with a, a vision of a world of love. He demands his law of us. And his wrath is stirred against those who oppose his law. And so you might wonder, that doesn't sound like a world of love. <laughs> is love threatening? Absolutely. You know, someone, an intruder comes into my house, my house of love, where I love my wife and I love my children. An intruder comes in. Does love threaten the intruder? Does love confront the intruder? Absolutely. If someone, in, uh, if someone is going to infect God's world of love with selfishness and hatred and arrogance and greed, God is not just going to say, hey, this is no big deal. Love does not say no big deal to the intruder. And so this raises a complicated question about the law because we are all people who have infected God's good world with selfishness, lies, and hatred. And that's why for some of you, you know, even coming to church and you open up, you say, what's the sermon going to be about today? And you saw the law. And there might have been some anxiety that kind of started, you started feeling in your skin of, oh, I'm about to, this is going to be a threatening sermon. Because the law represents God as a judge, the God that I'm accountable to, the, you know, the day of reckoning. How are we supposed to think about that? Well, that leads to our second question. Why do we need the law? Okay, what is the law? It's God's vision for human flourishing that should impact every area of our lives. But second, why do we need it? How does the law work in our lives? How should we hear it? How should we receive God's law? And historically, Christians have said that there are three uses of the law that I think are helpful for us in understanding why we need the Ten Commandments. Okay? So the first reason is because the law acts as a mirror of God's character. The law acts as a mirror of God's character. The character expressed in the law is who God is. So even, for example, you take this first commandment that we're looking at today. You shall have no other gods before me. 
This is almost like a marriage vow. God is saying, we're going to have an exclusive loyalty. I am marrying myself to you, and you need to be faithful to me. You can't be running after all these other gods that enslave you and cause you to like throw your children into fires and, uh, and that you know, dehumanize you. But what is this? So it's a, it's, a, it's a commandment about our fidelity to God. But what does this passage tell us about God's fidelity? What does verse 2 say? I am the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. God had centuries before promised to Israel, I'm going to be your God. You're going to be my people. I know you're going to be enslaved, but I'm going to rescue you. And he has proven his faithfulness. So the command for Israel's fidelity or for our fidelity is a reflection of God's own character that he is faithful. And when we see God's character in the law, his faithfulness, his goodness, his patience, his generosity, his justice, his honesty. It is a mirror showing us our own hearts, and it forces us to ask, are we like him? And you and I were made in his image. You know, the, whole, the Bible says that you and I were made in the image of God. And the whole point of being human, the reason you exist is to be a reflection to the world of the character and beauty of, of the God who made you. That's why you exist. And the question could be, well, how have we done? Have we reflected God's character to the world? Are we like him? Does our, reflect, does our life reflect the world, uh, the world of love that God envisions? The law shows us who we are. Now, the Bible tells us that all of us sitting here have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. And so each of us, when we look in that mirror, we will always see our failure to have a character like God's. But let me tell you, this is important. The mirror is not just there to beat you up and to make you feel bad about yourself. The mirror is there to drive you to Jesus. When you say, I'm not faithful, I'm not patient like he is, I'm not good like he is, I need someone to change me. I need someone to rescue me. I can't even change myself. And when we realize that, then the person of Jesus makes sense. Jesus makes sense uh, to us. Uh, And we won't know how deeply we need Jesus without the law. So for example, if you're here today and you say, you know, I'm, I'm not a Christian. I'm interested in what you all believe about the Bible. But you might say, you know, I, maybe you've had the thought, you say, you know, why are Christians always talking about how sinful they are? It seems like they're always beating themselves up. Well, I'd invite you to look in the mirror of this first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. What happens when you look in that mirror? You see that God made me. Every breath, every heartbeat, every meal, every friendship, my whole personality, all my gifts and my skills, every opportunity that I've ever had in my life, every pleasure I've experienced in my life, each of those things has been carefully given me as a gift from God. And there are all kinds of things that I will give myself to. You know, I'll give myself to my hobbies, I'll give myself to my job, I'll give myself to relationships. But it is entirely within all of our nature to spend decades of our life completely ignoring God. Like, I don't even speak to him. I don't even think about anything. I've never even asked the question why he gave me all those things and what he wanted me to do with them when he gave them to me. It never crossed my mind. I use them for myself. 
In this mirror, we see how immensely self-absorbed and ungrateful we are. And this is only the first commandment. It is only when we realize the extent to which we have fallen short of the kind of people God has called us to be that Jesus dying on the cross for our sins becomes a breath the breathtaking good news it really is. And by the way, if you're visiting here and you say, yeah, I looked in the mirror and it didn't look good, everyone sitting here has looked in that mirror and we saw the same thing. (laughs) And that's why we're here. (laughs) It's because we looked in the mirror and we saw the same thing and we said, we can't change ourselves. I can't do God's law. I need Jesus to work in my life and transform me. And so the first reason we need the law is to see the truth about ourselves to look in the mirror. The second reason we need the law is because the law is, is there to curb or prevent injustice. The reason that we have laws like you shall not murder or you shall not steal is because if there is no law threatening evil people, society is mayhem. And if you go to a country where there are no police, or you go to a country where the police are corrupt, or you go to a place where people murder and steal and there's no fear preventing them from doing those things, you have come to probably the closest place that you could experience to hell. That is what hell is like. And I remember actually being struck. I read the biography of John Adams many years ago, uh, the founding father, you know, second president of the United States. And I was struck by how much in his writings he talked about how important good laws are. What makes for a free society are good, just laws that are enforced. The law is a blessing. It is good. And so you might ask a question, though. You say, okay, a society needs laws if it's going to be free. But what about this law? You shall have no other gods before me. Is that an important law for our society? Should we, should we have a government that makes everyone say you shall have no other god besides the god of the Bible? Well, it's a complicated question. I can't go deeply into it. But I think uh, Christians at important times in history have recognized that it's better for governments not to impose religious beliefs on its people. And I know for our church, we don't want the government coming and telling us what we should believe. That's not their area of expertise. And we'll we'll leave that to the elders in the church to, to teach us what, you know, in our Bibles, what we should believe. But our culture is in a massive crisis but because as a society, you have to have some ultimate truth that holds a society together. And if the ultimate truth that we have is not the God who made us, you will have a different God holding us together. And this law is a warning to us. There is injustice. And when you chase after false gods, it, it dehumanizes people. It mistreats people. And there's effects of that. We've seen that in the past, and we may see it in the future. False gods will, will always fail us. So the law is a warning to us. So it's a mirror. It also curbs and prevents injustice you know, to create societies of freedom. But the third reason we need the law is as a guide for wise living. Once you know, Christ has come into our lives, we realize God has forgiven me in Jesus, and I'm his beloved son. When that happens in your life and your heart kind of comes alive, one of the first things you want to do is say, well, how do I walk with God? How do I serve God? How do I learn from Jesus to become like him? And the law is one of the guides that God has given us. And so let me explain the difference, though, between the first use of the law, the mirror, and the third use of the law, which is a guide for the Christian life, for walking with God. 
Let's take, for example, this first commandment. You shall have no other gods before me. Now, all of us may hear that commandment differently. Some of you may come here and you hear, you shall have no other gods before me, and the first thing that comes into your mind is all the other gods that you have in your life. And you say, it's like a, a huge burden. Like, it has just brought you so low. You say, I haven't come anywhere close to what that commandment says. And in that regard, this commandment is bad news because it, it shows me how flawed I am. But there may be some of you that come and, and you hear me say, you shall have no other gods before the Lord. And you're like, oh, how freeing. Like, you know, I feel a fresh challenge to give myself in service to God. And, and you know, I'm going to read my Bible more and pray this week. And I'm going to trust more in God. And, and it's almost like it was good news. It was refreshing. And you're like, how could the same message be a crushing burden to one person and it's like a refreshing challenge to another person. It all depends on our hearts. And these are different things that the law does and speaks to us in different ways. It's amazing that you shall have no other gods before me can either be good news or bad news. And these are two really different experiences. And this is the difference between the first use of the law and the third use, is who is hearing it. I'll tell you, this is one of the challenges of giving sermons every week. You know, you all come here, and you all have different stories. You come from different backgrounds. You had a different experience this week, different things you're struggling with, and only one sermon <laughs> for all the people. And that's why we praise God that the Holy Spirit is here. The Holy Spirit knows that some of us need to be humbled by the law. There's arrogance and self-righteousness in us, and we need to be humbled. The Holy Spirit knows that some of us just need some guidance to learn. How do I live as a Christian? Holy Spirit knows that some of us have been humbled and we feel deep shame about the ways we've sinned against God and we don't even need the law. We need the good news of the gospel, the grace of God preached to us. And it's this one message the Holy Spirit takes and teaches individually to each of our hearts. But it's this third use of the law where we actually start to live what God says, um, and that's what I want to talk about in our final point, okay? So we've talked about what is the law, God's vision for human flourishing, and why we need it as a mirror, and as something to threaten, you know, evil people from, from hurting one another, and it's a guide to those who, uh, who know God's love. And in light of that, this is our last question, is, is how then can we obey it? How can we do the things that God has commanded to us? Where does the power come from to do what God commands? And that may be a significant question for some of you. Maybe you've been a Christian for a while and you say, you know, I, I see I want change in my life. And I know what God expects of me, but it doesn't seem to change. And so where is the power that actually enables me to do the, this vision that God has for my life? And the answer is to understand the difference between indicatives and imperatives. What is an indicative? An indicative is a statement about who God is, what he has done, and who you are. It describes what is true. There's no command in the indicative, right? So for example, an indicative would be something like this. God is love, and he has forgiven your sins in Jesus, and now you are his beloved child. You're not told to do anything. There's no command in it. It's just a declaration of what's true. Now, an imperative, on the other hand, is a command. Something that you ought to do. That's God's law. 
the Ten Commandments. These are imperatives. And one of the most important principles for reading the Bible well is to realize that literally everywhere in the Bible, if you read the Bible, you'll find this everywhere, is that the indicative always comes before the imperative. And this passage that we're looking at this morning is one of the most classic examples of that in, in the whole Bible because verses 1 and 2 give you the indicative. What does the indicative say? And God spoke all these words saying, I'm the Lord your God who brought you out of the land of Egypt, out of the house of slavery. This is a statement about who God is, what he has done, who we are, his, his people, and these truths are secure. Can you change that statement? It's immovable. And it's only when that statement has been given, then verse 3 begins the imperative. In light of that, you shall have no other gods before me. First is the statement of God's love and faithfulness. Second is the command. And by the way, it wasn't just one verse of the indicative. We just had 18 chapters that we looked at last year of God's faithfulness and calling, hearing their cries when they were in slavery and sending Moses. And Moses was reluctant and God stayed with Moses. And then, you know, Pharaoh was pushing against him and God resisted Pharaoh and brought the 10 plagues. And then the people came out through the Red Sea and they're complaining already because they don't have food and they don't have water. And God is patient with them. And we see over and over again God's faithfulness. And he never says... Obey these Ten Commandments, and if you, do, if you obey these Ten Commandments, then I'll save you out of slavery. He never does that. He, he saves them out of slavery. He rescues them and makes them his people, and only then are they ready to hear the law. It is God's faithful love that enables and empowers their obedience to the law. It is God's faithful love that enables and empowers their obedience to the law. And this principle, let me just tell you, is one of the most important principles in the life of our church. Because many of us have this all mis mixed up in our hearts. Some of you maybe have heard this, but your heart doesn't operate that way. The default of our hearts is, if I obey God, then he will love me. We function that way. We treat other people that way. And when you think that way, you'll either become very self-righteous because you think you did obey God and he must love you so much because of that and you obeyed better than other people or you will have deep despair because you say, I don't come anywhere close to obeying God. He must not love me. He must not treasure me. He must not sing over me. And we become obsessed with law-keeping, not with relationship with God and with others. And we judge others. We become competitive and we're comparing how righteous are you how many laws did you keep what laws did I keep and we're constantly analyzing what we're doing what everyone else is doing and this kind of moralism simply doesn't work I mean it makes you a terribly unpleasant person <laughs> if you operate this way we don't want to be like that because it has no power to change our hearts and so when we ask the question how can we obey God's law or even how do I as a pastor get a congregation to obey God's law? The answer is the power is in the indicative. And the great indicative of the Bible is the gospel, that God loves lawbreakers in Jesus Christ. God loves lawbreakers in Jesus Christ. In him, lawbreakers are embraced, are welcomed, are treasured. In Jesus, we are rescued not just from the slavery of Egypt, but from the deeper slavery of our own sin. And when we know this deep down, and this, by the way, we don't know it. We need to hear it over and over again. 
We can't just hear it once. We can't just hear it right when we became a Christian. We have to hear it our whole Christian life that God loves lawbreakers in Jesus Christ like me, lawbreakers like me. There is a security that starts to live in our hearts. I am a loved child of God. And we don't need to be self-protective. We don't need to be defensive or arrogant. And when that happens, there is the sweetness of God's law can begin to emerge in our hearts and actions. And this is in many ways the secret of the whole Bible. The law can't change you, but Jesus can. And so the law of God is a beautiful thing. It's God's vision for human life, for thriving in a world of love, and we need it because it's a mirror that forces us to be honest with who we are. It keeps evil from running wild, and it's a guide for wise living. But the only way we can ever start to obey the law is when we first believe something that is not the law. That is when we believe the gospel. The free, gracious love of God for lawbreakers. And only then will our lives be changed. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we praise you for the beauty of your law. We see in history the blessing that it has brought to your people, and to nations. Lord, we pray for your law to do its work in our own minds and hearts. I pray for those who are here, who do have self-righteousness and arrogance, that your law uh, would be a mirror to drive them uh, to see their own sin and to go to Jesus, the friend of sinners. Uh, I pray for those who already feel weighed down by their shame and their failure. I pray that, Jesus, you would come and lift their heads. You'd speak words of mercy and grace and kindness to them. And we pray that your beautiful words would guide us as a community, that we do long for our lives to reflect your beautiful character. So, Lord, we give ourselves to you as your servants. In Jesus' name. Amen.